Hey, welcome to the podcast, today's Voices of Conservation Science from Montana State University in beautiful Bozeman, Montana. We're here in Studio 300 Lewis, and I'm Chris Guy. I'm your host for today's podcast. This podcast focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. The podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Today, I'm here with Shane Petch, and he is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Shane, how's it going today? I'm great, Chris. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm doing good, enjoying this weather. We always seem to talk a little bit about the weather um, <laughs> on the podcast because it is Montana, and it seems to be always dynamic. That's right. Yeah, we um, had a little bit of winter this morning and yeah. a little bit of spring this evening, so yep. it's good. It's that time of year where uh, you never know quite what you're going to get. Um, so let's start off with you just telling us, a, excuse me, telling us a little bit about yourself. All right. I, uh, grew up in Western Colorado, um, moved to Bozeman in 2013 to start work, uh, on my bachelor's of science, uh, with a focus on fisheries and wildlife management. I worked a few summer intern jobs to get experience through that process. I worked with, uh, sharp grouse in Western Colorado and then Miriam's turkeys, uh, for a graduate student here at MSU uh, over in South Dakota. And then did some volunteering projects as well with bighorn sheep and hunter check stations and things like that that I think have been really beneficial for me. And um, also spent a summer in the Bitterroot Valley of Montana, which was wonderful, working on the MPG Ranch. And, uh, and then worked a fall in Antarctica in 2017 and, and officially started the graduate program here, working on the Weddell Seal Project in the spring of 2018. That's quite a, uh, a, a track record there, moving around quite a bit. Um, what, uh, what, what got you kind of interested in that Weddell Seal project? We'll talk more about it in, in detail, but just the, the excitement of going to Antarctica, was that part of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's always, <laughs> yeah. always there for, you know, for me and for everyone that's interested in this project. Um, and then I think, you know, you start to get a little bit more interested in, in – sort of the nuts and bolts of the project itself and mm -hmm. the long-term nature of, of this project, I think we'll talk about probably later. And, um, and the seals themselves are, are extremely interesting. And, um, yeah, it's one of those projects that you hear about as a freshman, I think coming into MSU and, and so the chance to get to work on it and, and then the, uh, the privilege to, to be here as a graduate student on the project is, is quite a big, big privilege. Right. And you came to Montana state university from Colorado. Did you, did you, did your family move here or did you pick Montana State University as uh, the, the where you wanted to get your undergraduate degree from? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. My my sister actually came here first and uh, I was jealous for a long time that she came to the school <laughs> that, you know, I wanted to go to while I was still in high school. I thought this was the place for me. And here was my sister kind of stealing the school. And it was actually great for our relationship, I think. And uh, so my parents are still back in Colorado. And um, so she kind of came here first and I was looking to get out of Colorado and have a different experience and do something new and, and thought a lot of the, the, uh, wildlife department here at Montana state. So mm -hmm. I thought it'd be a good pass for me. So did you mention where you grew up in Colorado? I might've missed that. Uh, I grew up on the Western slope. Uh, so okay. I lived for quite a while in, in Craig, Colorado, and then moved to, uh, Grand Junction, Colorado, right on the Colorado river. Is Grand Junction and, and that area getting developed as much as the East side? I mean, I know the East side's much more developed, but is the West side starting to grow? I think in some ways. Um, yeah, maybe not so much. It, it's not the sort of housing boom that I think Denver and 
and the Front Range are experiencing right now, but there's been quite a lot of uh, oil and gas development and exploration going on in that part of the world. And uh, but Grand Junction's certainly growing. It's becoming more and more of a retirement community. So growing up in Colorado, I mean, I, I can kind of get a sense of what you know the 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 beauty of the landscape and those kinds of things are going to kind of lead to this next question. I, I think a good segue into the next question of of what compelled you to pursue a career in conservation. I'm guessing that had a little bit to do do with it. Yeah, I think I think it certainly did. I think if I hadn't had great natural places to get outside and and enjoy, I probably wouldn't have ended up in this profession. So I think growing up where I did was a big part of it. Um, And in Western Colorado, you know, those wild places are a little bit easier to get to um, than sometimes on the front range. Um, So yeah, I think that was a huge part of it. And my parents were a huge influence in in helping me get outside and and making sure that I, uh, yeah, learned to enjoy it, I suppose. Yeah, so... Um, just kind of following up with the parents, what they, they helped you get outside, but was, can we unpack that just a little bit? What were they helping you do? Were you guys going and fishing and camping, those kinds of things? Yeah, I think that was a big part of it. We did spend a lot of time camping and, and they were also just this sort of parents. And I, this is probably part of where I grew up too, that uh, we had some land that I could just kind of go out and get out of their hair for a while and, <laughs> and, and do my thing outside and play in a Creek and look at bugs and things. And, um, and I have great memories. My dad's a, a wildlife biologist in Colorado. Um, so some of my earliest memories with him are going out and, and counting sage grouse at five in the morning on, on Lex and, I think that had a huge influence early on of, of helping me understand that this was something, you know, a, a career in wildlife, I mean, is something that you can actually do. And, and so that was big. five in the morning, you didn't mind that? As, as yeah, I think as a little kid, it was still exciting, you know, and yeah, exactly. you could take a nap at 10 and it wasn't a big deal, but yeah, that became harder later in life. It's funny how that works. Yeah. Um, I think some of the, the adventures I've taken my kids on, uh, probably they decided this wasn't the profession for them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, that's, that's great. So the parents played a big role and, and where you, uh, where you grew up, uh, the place played a big role in your, um, you know, wanting to pursue a, d- a degree, a profession in conservation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that you pointed out that you had some land to go play on. There's a lot of um, indication now in the literature that, you know, kids aren't doing that as much and there isn't as much experience doing that. Mm. And, and that just being outside, maybe not in an organized, you know, uh, sports program or something like that, just letting kids explore on their own is, uh, is a way, <clears throat> excuse me, as a way to get them in, uh, interested in the outdoors and conservation. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I, I know for sure that was huge for me looking back on that. I don't, I think if it had been more structured, I think I would I would look at it differently. But having the freedom to just sort of run around and explore on my own was was huge. Um, so to get to this point, um, you've had a lot of a lot of experiences, you know, working f- um, with some some different folks and agencies, and and you've had this you had this great experience of of going down and um, being a technician in, in the, on the seal project. It, it, what I'm trying to get at here is that to get to this point, a lot of times there's hurdles, you know, that we have to 
get over. And um, are there any hurdles that you can think of or rough patches, if you will, that, that you want to share with the listeners that you went through and you've overcome those and here you are sitting here doing this podcast? Yeah, I think, I think it's sort of important to just kind of note that I, I feel that I've had a, a pretty easy go of it in, in the way that I've had great people along the way that have given me sort of big jumps uh, along this path that, that have helped me get positions and, and make contacts that have, that have paid off down the road. Um, so it's just important to me to kind of talk about that. But the, the big hurdles I've had have been more on the personal side of, of kind of self-doubt and, and being a little bit uh, self-conscious about things and, and not willing to always put myself out there as much or um, kind of believe that, that I can do this big thing that I care so much about. Um, and yeah, I think that's kind of an everyday battle and, and, and maybe other, other folks are experiencing that. And, and maybe for some, it's, you know, just understanding that you will get those breaks and you'll find the right position after a while and you'll make the right connections with people. And it just takes some time and, um, you know, you just have to keep kind of putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. I think it's, um, it's also good that you mentioned kind of the self doubt and there's a, you know, we've had other people on the podcast that have, you know, imposter syndrome, you know, am I mm. really good enough to do this Definitely. and those kinds of things. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's a very, um, I'm no psychologist, but I, I believe that's a very natural experience for people to have. I mean, I've had it, for years and there's certainly things that I do now that I'm like, golly, I don't know, you know, if I can do that. And, you know, you have some self-doubt and those kinds of things. What's neat though is being able to take that self-doubt and build with that, right? And and get better and, and make yourself a better person or or um uh, better at some particular aspect that you want to focus on. Yeah. For certainly. for research or, or your, your science. Definitely. Yeah. And I think, you know, graduate school has been a great sort of incubator for that I think with me that that, you know it sort of forces me to get through all of these issues (laughs) whether I want to deal with them in the moment or not you know exactly I I have to deal with them so that's it's been a beneficial thing and certainly not easy um but it's it's been beneficial and I think will continue to be yeah and that's also interesting because you know there's so many intangible things that come with going to graduate school and that's one of them right there's no class on that that we require you to take to help with kind of self-doubt. It just kind of works itself out. And, you know, we have great advisors and mentors here in our department. And I know they, they all help with those kinds of things that, that people are struggling with. Yeah, definitely. So I'm here with Shane Petch and he is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. And he is studying the population dynamics of Weddell seals in Antarctica. And this is the time where we switch to your research. And so um, tell us a little bit about your work on Weddell seals in Antarctica. All right. I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to work on a, a long-term project. Um, so we're based out of Erebus Bay, just off the coast of Ross Island. So Erebus Bay, I mean, I have no idea where that's at in Antarctica. Why is that? It's, I was just curious why, why you mentioned that. Is that a pretty important spot. It is important in the way that uh that's where uh McMurdo station is is I guess based um and that's where a huge amount of our support comes from to be able to do the research that we do. Okay. Um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, it, yeah, maybe goes without saying that, that we need a ton of logistical support in, in, in order to do the sort of research that we do. And, um, the folks in, in McMurdo station help us get that, that job done. Okay. that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, it helps to be sort of based around, uh, McMurdo station for that reason. Um, and it's, yeah, I think it's an interesting part of Antarctica as well. Um, but as I said, this is a, a long-term project. It's been going since 1968. And um, the field methods that we use today were really implemented in, in the early 1980s. And since then, it's it's been about what it is today in terms of the work that we do. Um, and since the 1980s, we've been uh, tagging every single pup that's born in, in our specific study area as well as any new mothers uh, that, that give birth within the study area. And what that allows us to do is, is over time, develop a known age, known identity database um, that I think is, is really unparalleled or paralleled by few other studies in the world that, that allows us to ask some, some pretty interesting questions about what the SEALs are doing and then potentially you know, make some broader statements about uh, how mammals in, in general interact with different environments. So you said since the 1980s, every pup has been tagged? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Do you know off the top of your head how many pups that is? I don't know how many pups. <laughs> I, I can give you a sense maybe. So so I've worked two field seasons down there now, and it's it's an interesting thing too. Um, so my first season, we tagged around 780 pups. Holy cow. Um, which was a big year. That was a record year for us, which is it's a pretty interesting thing to sort of kind of piece together now mm-hmm. and put the puzzle pieces together about why that might be occurring. And, uh, this last season we, we tagged around 450 pups. So, um, you know, that, that difference in, in pups is a pretty interesting thing. Just, you know, it's, it's all sort of within our long-term average. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there is some, some variation occurring there and, and, but yeah, you can sort of get a sense of, of how many pups we've tagged over the last yeah, that's a lot of pups. 40 years or so. And so those pups are tagged and then do those tags, um, are they retained as they get older? And so you have adults then you're seeing on the ice, I'm guessing that were tagged as pups. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's a big part of this long-term study. So we, we use just kind of general livestock tags that we we'd put on sheep or something here in Montana and we put them in the interdigital webbing of their rear flippers and they each seal gets two identical pairs of tags and those tags will stay on the seal for the life of the tags and and part of our job every season is also to go around and look for adults that might have tags that are worn out or or missing in some cases and and we try to repair those tags with new tags um, and we we can retain the identity of that individual in our database um, and uh, and do it that way. And, and so another big aspect of this study is to do some some surveys throughout the season where we look for those individuals that might need new tags, but but also uh, record the individual or record the identity of all the individuals within our study area. We try to do that in a single day, and that helps us get a sense of of what populations might be doing. So is there a hazard associated with going up to these pups? And I guess the adults too. You might see an adult that needs a new tag, right? Mm-hmm. And as I mean. I've, I mean, I'm just guessing they might not like that, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Another kind of interesting thing about Weddell seals is they've, they've evolved in this, um, predator free environment. So they, they can swim in underneath the, the fast ice, um, and they can hold their breath longer than leopard seals and orcas and, and access these areas. 
in McMurdo Sound, right up against the coast where the cracks form, um, areas where they can haul out mm-hmm. and give birth to their pups. So there's no predators back there. So they're relatively um, kind of ambivalent to us. Oh, that's um, nice. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, it's something messing with their something is messing with their pup. Yeah. You know, they tend to be a little bit uh, protective, just like any other animal would be. Um, so, we, you know, we have some methods to deal with that. And, right. um, yeah. So you're tagging the pups. I'm guessing you're getting some other measurements on the pups as well. Um, you know, some of the classic things we measure, you know, like the weight of the animal and, you know, how health, healthy they are, if you will. Are you measuring some of those kinds of things as well? We are. Yeah. So that's another big, big push during our season is to um, collect that kind of data on a subset of our pups. So it'd be a lot of work to do this for, for the whole population of pups that it's born every year. But for some of them, uh, we take a weight measurement and we do that three times. So once right at birth within two days of birth, and then again at 20 days and again at at 35 days, which is approximately when we think that, that the moms take off and, and leave the, the young on their own. Um, and we're doing this so that, that we can study how weight changes in pups, uh, might occur during, during the lactation period. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, my portion of the project is, is looking at the amount of time that, that pups are spending in the water during this lactation period from birth to about 35 days of age. And so to do that, we're using uh, eye button temperature loggers that are attached to a, a livestock tag. So these pups just get a, an extra little tag that stays on for about 35 days. And this whole time it's recording temperatures at six minute intervals. And Later in the season, we, we cut it off at 35 days and remove the tag and, and, and have this, this temperature data that we can start to work with to try and piece together when the pups are in the water and out of the water. And so why is it, why is it important to know how much time the pups are in the water? Why is that important to know? Yeah, for us, it really comes down to, to sort of a fundamental idea of, of, of that, that seals spend a lot of time in, in the water. And so for for a seal, uh, learning how to spend time in the water and developing those skills is probably really important to later um, reproduction and survival, um, especially. And Weddell seals are also pretty unique in that that mothers are really involved in this process in this species. So in other seal species, um, the lactation period tends to be shorter, and mothers don't tend to swim with pups, and pups don't often tend to swim during the lactation period either. Um, so this is kind of a unique behavior and, and we're curious in understanding more about it um, because it doesn't occur in other places. So then are you trying to get at um, maybe the question around how survival differs for pups that, that um, let me see, I'm trying to say this, that are, that are learning to swim earlier or are better swimmers so they are going to end up having higher survival rates is that what you're looking at yeah that's that's sort of the ultimate goal um it it makes sense to us on sort of an intuitive level that that the pups that are swimming more um probably have the development to um maybe uh catch prey better or or um evade predators easier when when the ice melts out and they are facing predation from orcas and leopard seals um unfortunately it takes a long time to get that sort of data. Right. So we've been we've been collecting data um, for swim time since 2009, and we're just now getting enough data to start to ask questions about survival. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
Weddell seals tend to recruit at around um, eight years of age. And, you know, so it takes eight years between when we tag a pup and when we see them again as an adult um, to start to know something about how well they've survived in that yeah. time. Yeah. Um, so is there, can you relate some of the swim time with uh, temperature data, some of the temperature data that you have from the swim time to the weight data that you're collecting through time and that I wonder if there's any relationship between how long they're swimming or how much they're swimming and those, the, the weight information you're getting. Yeah, certainly. So that's, that's one of the places that we're going with this is, is trying to understand the relationship between weight and how weight might change during the lactation period um, to try to relate that change um, to how much pups might be swimming in the water. Yeah. Cause I was just thinking of the long-term data sets probably has long-term weight data on the pups and if there, there might be, a, I don't know if it's been worked out or not, but the, I'm sure it's been looked at the relationship between the weight of the pups or the average weight of the pups and whether they survive or, or some type of survival. Right. Yeah. So, so there has been some work done on that. And my colleague, uh, Caitlin McDonald, who's a PhD student on my project, um, she's done a ton of work on, on understanding the relationship between maternal weight and a whole host of other characteristics about moms and, and how that relates to pups. Mm -hmm. um, so her goal will be to start to ask questions about survival. And for me, her work is, is really important because we're also interested, as I said, in uh, understanding some of these maternal characteristics because this is a species where we think mothers are really involved in this process, and that's a pretty unique thing. So we have these characteristics about pups that we're interested in, such as weight, and then there's some characteristics about mothers like age or maybe... Uh, how many previous pups they've had, some aspect about their prior reproductive experience that we can use to try to explain some of the variability that we see in this swimming behavior. And we couldn't really ask those questions and, and relate these uh, swimming behaviors to maternal characteristics if we didn't have a long-term data set where we actually did know the reproductive histories for so many of these mothers and, mm -hmm. and their actual age and, and all these things. So what's the best thing you could discover if if... You know, you could kind of project out there. Um, what's the best thing you could discover that would be, um, you know, beneficial to other scientists or beneficial to the species? Yeah, there are a couple of things that come to mind. I think this this particular method we're using with the eye buttons is is kind of a novel technique to get at this idea of how much time individuals are spending in the water. Um, so that's kind of an exciting thing to, to figure out and and see if it actually works the way that we hope it will. Um, and this is also an interesting question to me because uh, regardless of what we find out and, and regardless of whether, you know, our hypotheses, our hypotheses about what we think is going on actually pan out, um, it will be just as interesting if our hypotheses don't work out the way that we think they do. And, and I guess what I mean by that is that we're bringing so much data to this problem. And if, if we can't describe some of the variation that we see in swim behavior with 40 years worth of maternal data, that's actually a pretty exciting thing um, because, you know, we're wrong, but it's exciting that we're wrong with as much data as we're bringing in. And so that provides a new field to sort of, or new, new path that we can really start looking into. Yeah, that pushes you to alternative hypotheses, yeah, which, exactly. um, yeah, I think a, a lot of people at the, the stage that you're at in your career s struggle with that because they think they got to have some kind of, significant result that supports their hypothesis or something like that. But we are always trying to get across that 
not, you know, refuting your hypothesis or <clears throat> sending you down the path of an alternative hypothesis is still um, progress in science. That's what science is all about, right? Yeah, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's about that incremental change and, and, and you know, one stepping block along this path to understanding what this behavior is, is all about for these seals. Yeah. Well, it's very fascinating. Um, my last question is kind of our softball question, if you will, and it has to do with uh, what is your favorite species? Um, it can be an animal or a plant or both. I guess it could be anything, but we've kinda, we've been uh, asking about animals and plants. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, this is a hard one. I know everyone struggles with this. Um, so, yeah, what I decided on because it's been always been on my list is the American kestrel for my species. I think they're just really amazing birds and really fun to watch, and mm-hmm. they're beautiful. Yeah. Um, and then for my plant, I decided on the pink elephant flower. Help me with uh, that one. I didn't have time to look that up before yeah, the interview. Yeah, everybody listening <laughs> should go Google it too. They're they're really just remarkable flowers. Um, I was first exposed to them on a fishing trip with my dad, so I think they've always kind of signified that mm-hmm. to me. That's why they're special to me. But but they are just really incredible little flowers. They do look just like a little stock with pink elephant faces all over it. So it's oh. it's an incredible thing. And I'm guessing we have them in Montana. I have seen them in Montana. Yeah, okay. I saw some up at Georgetown Reservoir. Okay, so they like really wet kind of okay so on the west west side maybe northwest montana yeah yeah Yeah. i think so okay well shane thank you for taking the time to chat with me today and i wish you the best in your studies at montana state university and your research on weddell seals thanks very much chris i appreciate it if you enjoy the podcast we'd like to hear from you and uh, please uh, share a review Thank you for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science, and please spread the word about this podcast.